School of Humans. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Ruby slippers clicked three times, and voila! Dorothy returns to Kansas, as per Glinda the Good Witch's instructions. So, I played Dorothy in my nursery school production of The Wizard of Oz, igniting a lifelong obsession with the classic story. And until I chatted with a couple old hippie friends for this podcast, my main thoughts about Kansas, a state I've never visited, were related to The Wizard of Oz and the universal truth that there's no place like home. There's no place like home. However... After hearing stories from my dad's old friend, Tall Joe, and a friend who goes by the alias K-Pot Granddaughter, my notion of Kansas has shifted. In today's bonus episode, Kansas, Cannabis, and Chickens, we're going to Kansas, and then we're going to talk about chickens. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and this is Disorganized Crime, Smuggler's Daughter. Oh my god, I'm awesome. How are you? I'm alright, just on a little staycation, you know? That sounds... I'm on a staycation as well. <laughs> this is K-Pot Granddaughter. Now, my parents don't know her well, but she and I are friends from the hippie theater community, and we've been acquainted for about 30 years. She grew up in Kansas, and she's telling me about the first time she got high. It was sweltering. Uh, I was playing tennis with a friend. We, um finished our set and decided, oh, we'll smoke some. Well, but it was still incredibly hot. We took off our shirts and we played. We thought that'd be funny, you know. Then we took off our bras and we were standing side by side on the court, passing the joints, of course, and a police cruiser cruised by. Um, Two men in the car and they looked at us and they slowed down and they looked at us again and nothing happened. A few minutes later, they drove by again, and they looked at us, they looked at our chests, and they just smiled and kept driving. Ah, the patriarchy. Instinctively distracted by their probable primary source of nourishment, the mammary gland, that they miss the criminal activity. Reminding me what the Mary Jane Mamas, Candy Can, and Peach Blossom from Episode 5 taught us. Beauty and boobs are a great distraction from illicit endeavors. Cannabis history in Kansas goes back to the mid-1800s when hemp production was as common as tornadoes. Trivia tidbit, Kansas averages 96 tornadoes a year. 
That seems like a lot. I come from earthquake country, but 96 tornadoes a year seems like quite a bit. So hemp, as common as tornadoes, maybe more. Now, in fact, for decades, America's heartland was a major contributor to the hemp industry. And according to a state agricultural report, in 1863, Kansas ranked first in the U.S. for bushels of hemp per acre. Now, my Kansan friend Kay Pot's story reveals the robust interconnection between her community of cannabis-using Kansans and the state's long history of hemp cultivation. Now, K-Pot is the daughter of middle-class African-Americans who were part of a population of Kansans who grew and smoked marijuana years before it was popular with the San Francisco psychedelic pioneers. Her grandfather grew it in his garden and hired pickers to harvest it regularly. See? It's everywhere. I mean, my culture, people from my culture used to smoke it all the time. It was no big deal. My mom said that she was sitting in, there was four gardens, tiered gardens, and um, the top garden was where they grew it. And the men would come in to work. And my mother said she remembers, you know, them giving them tea or beer or whatever. And everyone had a brown paper bag. And then my grandfather grandmother would count out the money to them. And then they would light up. K-Pot reveals her mom and grandma were never shooed away from the pot harvest and smoking afternoons. Because in her subculture, everyone was smoking. Cannabis was common. K-Pot gives voice to the historic communities of pot-smoking African-Americans targeted for disruption by Nixon, Reagan, and their cronies who criminalized cannabis in order to vilify black people and hippies, as we discussed in episode three, The Devil Weed. But another story, my mother belonged to the Blue Monday Club. They was a literary club for professional African-American women. These were her friends. Sometimes, there was always a potluck, early potluck, but my sister called it the day the mommies laughed because other times they listened to music, they danced, and they smoked pot. Now, these Blue Monday club meetings enjoyed by K-Pot's mom took place in the mid-1950s. A potluck in more ways than one. A rim shot. But um, yeah, that's funny. It was good. What year is this? Oh, God. I was a little kid, maybe... 1956, 57, I just remembered that one person owned a bakery and she would bring colored bread. You know, they would dye it blue, green, black, whatever. And I'd take it to school and I was very popular because I had this fancy bread, you know. The fun was everywhere in Kansas, from the Blue Monday Club to rainbow bread to the ditches. How can a ditch be fun? Because Kansas was, and still is, full of wild cannabis, known as ditchweed, left over from the state's extensive hemp production in the 1800s, which, of course, led to communities of cannabis using Kansans since the 1800s. Today, if you drive along certain parts of Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas, it's easy to spot and smell fields of ditchweed and strands of it lying along the road. Now, ditchweed has little value for livestock, so it's fairly untouched by wildlife, and therefore abundant. Now, unfortunately for the THC enthusiasts out there, ditchweed has low THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, the chemical responsible for most of marijuana's psychological effects. 
So while you might get a slight buzz from the ditchweed, it won't be the memorable experience a THC-rich cannabis provides. Now, as of this recording, pot is still illegal in Dorothy's home state, but there's ample ditchweed. It leads us to another Kansas story from an old friend of the lemurs, Tall Joe. I mentioned his name in episode one, as Tall Joe was part of the smuggler's baseball game in Mill Valley in that crisp marine air. He and his family have been close with our family for about 40 years, and his lifelong career in cannabis began in Kansas. This is Disorganized Crime. I'm Rainbow Valentine. We'll be right back. landed. Here we are at the farmhouse. Chimes and succulents everywhere. It's so good to be back in NorCal. So beautiful. All right, let's knock on the farmhouse door. Let's do it. Hello? Hello? Hey, how are you? So I visited Tall Joe at his Sonoma County home, where I found him sorting through a vat of greeny-brown nibs. It was marijuana shake to cook with butter, the essential ingredient in tasty edibles. What a good hippie. You're not going to Burning Man? Not this year. Not. <laughs> I would like to go, but I just don't have a RV. I can't go. How many times have you gone to Burning Man? Now, Tall Joe was never a smuggler. Like Far Out, Tall Joe is a lifelong pot dealer. And in the 1980s, he was one of the local dealers to whom my dad would distribute pot, usually small loads of 100 pounds or less. And like all our family friends I've known my whole life, I never knew Tall Joe's backstory until he agreed to be on the podcast. Tall Joe grew up in Detroit. And much like my dad, he started dealing pot because he loved smoking it. I was just, I don't know, I was just thinking that in the, in the early days, people got into dealing and stuff because they could buy an ounce from their friends or something who came back from San Francisco or something. That's how it happened back in Michigan. These friends of mine sent out this young girl to go pick up a, you know, a pound or some half pound, I forget what it was. But, and she had so much fun out here that she didn't come back for like a month or six weeks. And everybody's going, what happened, you know, and everybody, you know, back there. But if you bought an ounce then and you sold a quarter to somebody, a quarter to somebody else, then you ended up not having to pay for it yourself. And so, I mean, that's just the way it, it just developed, right? Then, I mean, people would then do that. In 1967, Tall Joe and some of his pot-loving Michigan chums went to California to immerse themselves in the magic and madness of hippiedom and the summer of love. Now, before he and his pals headed back to Detroit, he learned about ditchweed in Kansas. I, I came out in the Haight-Ashbury and, uh, and, you know, caught the end of the summer of love and everything. And it was quite a, quite a scene out here in Haight-Ashbury and Haight Street and everything like that. We left the day of the the, the death of the hippie. They marched a, a casket around Haight Street up down by the panhandle and all that. It was supposed to be death of the hippie, right? And that was the, you know, that. And we left back and we went and somebody told us that there was pot growing in Kansas, ditchweed like that used to be, they used to grow hemp, you know, during the war. And it was still out there somewhere. 
So on the way back to the Motor City, Tal Joe and his friends made a detour. When we drove back, this friend of mine, a couple ladies or something, and we stopped and at a like a laundromat and bought these big garbage bags and went out on a Sunday morning, like at seven or eight in the morning, on these little tiny roads. And then we saw, you know, at creeks running through and we kind of hiked back in there and found all this ditch weed threw it out on the road it, it was hemp mostly I mean it was like you know they weren't gr- they grew it for hemp basically yeah. it, and, you know it's all legal until 30 1937 right. so this was and then during the war they didn't they needed hemp too for ropes and parachutes and all the rest of this stuff so it didn't really go you know that much illegal till later on you know it was a funny scene though because I remember these people going to church and they drove by and looked at us like we were, you know, pushing all this stuff into bags and all this, you know, like we were semi looking not in the straightest could be, you know, even coming out of the Ashburn. We got back to Detroit with this stuff and divided it in half. And I and this friend took this the guy took this other half and I took mine and cleaned it up. And he got busted the same night. Oh my God. Somehow. I don't even know how it happened. I didn't talk to see him that, you know, or whatever. But so anyway, I put my stuff, because it wasn't very good. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, and I just put it away and put it in the closet and forgot about it, basically. Now, Tall Joe forgot about the Kansas ditch weed in the closet because better weed was available to smoke for the time being. Now, this podcast has focused primarily on the movement of the psychedelic pioneers, pot, and LSD, which came out of the 1960s. But that decade is also, of course, known for the civil rights movement and its momentous impact on the U.S. and the rest of the world. The 60s was a time of extremes, when rebellion against the puritanical racist society erupted in the form of both hippie free love and civil rights bloodshed. So when Tall Joe returned to Detroit from San Francisco, he went directly from the hippie movement to the civil rights movement with a quick stop in Kansas. He went from peace, love, and rock and roll to violent race riots. Now, Tall Joe's hometown, the Motor City, was the site of the Detroit riot of July 1967, the bloodiest riot of the long, hot summer of 1967, which refers to a summer of 159 race riots throughout the country. The Detroit riot, also known as the 12th Street Riot, was mostly clashes between black citizens and the Detroit police. It was the largest uprising in the U.S. since the 1863 New York City draft riots of the Civil War. Now, less than a year after the Detroit riot in 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And strangely enough, that historic calamity was the catalyst that started Tall Joe's lifelong pot-dealing career. And then when Martin Luther King got killed in 68, they put Detroit under curfew for days. You couldn't go out at night or nothing, or else, you know, there's cops and there was tanks and stuff, and... You know, you didn't know I want to be caught, so there was no pot around. And somebody was saying, and they go, I go, well, shit, I got this stuff in my closet, right? And brought it out, and it still wasn't very good, but it was something. And these 
people just gobbled it up, smoked it. I mean, it wouldn't charge them that much or anything, but it, it just kind of flashed me. Wow, this stuff, you know, you can make some money here. You can make a living maybe selling some pot here and all that. So, I mean, it's kind of, actually, I, I went then moved on out here because it's too, that whole was freaky though, the whole Detroit, because it had had Detroit riots in 67. And then in 68, they wanted to make sure there was no riots. That's why they had a big curfew right away, right after Martin Luther King got killed. So. So after that, I came back. I came out here to live and stuff. And yeah, I mean, it was just part of the, the whole history then, of, of, you know, because you know, Robert Kennedy got killed, and then he got killed, and wasn't good for. Uh, and of course, the Vietnam War was heavy duty going on, and all that. I found out later. I went to my high school class. Anybody that didn't go to college and didn't have the pull to, to get a deferment got drafted and fought in Vietnam. And that's, that's, that's pretty outrageous in a way. So Tall Joe is a poster child for the pot-loving hippie reviled by the anti-marijuana establishment of Nixon and Reagan. It was fascinating to learn that two friends who represent the enemy of the racist Puritan system, a hippie and an African-American, both shared the link of Kansas in their lifelong weed enthusiasm. Kansas, home to Dorothy, wild cannabis, and a linchpin for hippies and African-American pot smokers. And who knows who else. Next up, a totally unrelated story from my smuggler parents that I really wanted to share with you because it's ridiculous. Okay, so if you watch Mad Men, the TV series, you'll remember that the season finale ends with Don Draper at a self-realization healing center in Northern California. Recognizable to anyone who spent time in the Bay Area in the 70s and 80s as Est in Big Sur. EST, a.k.a. Earhart Seminars Training, was an organization started by Werner Earhart in 1971, offering transformational healing and self-success to seekers who pay for the seminars, which always lead to another essential seminar in order to achieve contentment. Now, groups like EST, full of self-declared gurus and spiritual leaders, flourished throughout California, particularly Marin County, throughout the 70s and 80s. And they're still there today. Now, thankfully, my parents never got into these predatory groups, but they've always loved laughing at them. Here's a little slice of us having tea at their breakfast table and talking about groups like Est and their idea, the lemur's idea for their own self-actualization organization. Just tell me what the chicken thing is. What chicken thing? The chicken thing was. Oh, okay. I'll talk. Don't interrupt. You can book yeah. Okay. I'll talk. We had chickens in Mill Valley, and they they lived in this special coop that Walter made a Chinese um, meditation hut for the chickens. And uh, we used to watch the chickens. So then one day we were watching the chickens pecking at each other and being weird. We had a lot of beautiful chickens. We had Polish Cochins and like Plymouth Rock. We had beautiful chickens and um, they laid pink and blue eggs. They were just like humans. <laughs> they were. Yeah. They were just, it was exactly like humans. You had the king, 
you know, who strutted around and pecked whoever, whenever. Uh, you had his 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 helpers, or the, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, and then the weaklings. And as they fell, the, the, we didn't have very many weaklings uh -huh. because we kept our chickens, and they were all these very fancy chickens. You remember? Do, I, I do remember. They're buff coachins and all these. You, we didn't know how beautiful mom Beatrice, found these. The buff coachins. The, <laughs> so we thought. That was, you know, Esther just finished, and and everybody was running and doing workshops on how to, you know, become one with the universe. And we thought, we could just put people out here and, win them and just say, watch the chickens For work. <laughs> become, <laughs> become free. <laughs> you know, you enjoy the chickens and see how they, you know, how they relate, and then you learn how to how to be in society, but we never did it, but that was our premise. <laughs> we really, you're going to have a workshops on just watching chickens and yeah. meditating? Yeah, learning, yeah, what it was all about. <laughs> well, well, it was, uh, were we calling it uh, chicken therapy? Yeah. We're calling it's it, a good idea. It's, it's a, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good idea then. Nothing has changed other than it's a good idea. And that's chicken therapy. Keep your eyes open for the Lemur Side Hustle, offering a holistic, transformational healing experience with nature and fancy chickens. Maybe some live sitar from Gabby Lala, our sitar player, and maybe it'll be on Candy Can's Sonoma County Farm. And there at Chicken Therapy, you will achieve lasting contentment. All thanks to the chickens. And, of course, the Lemur Family Gurus. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and this is Disorganized Crime, Smuggler's Daughter. Disorganized Crime, Smuggler's Daughter is written and recorded by me, Rainbow Valentine. Our producers are Gabby Watts and Taylor Church. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, Elsie Crowley, and me at School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Charles Bryant at iHeartRadio. Our music is by Gabby Lala and Claire Campbell, with original theme by Mark Karen and me. You can follow us online at disorganizedcrimepodcast.com. Make it up as we roll along.